Hello, and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 121, recorded March 13th, 2019. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Akin. And this episode is brought to you by Datadog. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash Datadog. More on that later. Brian, how you been? I'm, well, actually, I had a rough week last week, but I, I think I'm getting back to it. Where did you get in a fight with a dentist? Yeah, I went to like two dentists and two doctors just to fix one tooth, but... Yeah, it's all done now. Well, glad to hear you're doing better, at least. <laughs> you know, I would say the future is looking bright. What do you think? Yeah, especially with Python 3 coming uh, everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so what's your first item here? Well, the first item is, uh, oh, yeah, you were doing like a like a whole transition thing. So, yeah, <laughs> I get it now. Futurize and auto-futurize. So, Futurize is, there's a website called pythonfuture.org, and they have this thing called Futurize that you can turn it on in stages. So it has a whole bunch of different modular switches. And the, the idea is to, to automate your conversion from Python 2 to Python 3. So like one thing you can do is like fix the print statement, but nothing else, things like that. Is that the idea? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different little modular things you can do. And I don't I actually I didn't dig into it enough to know if you can really, really go really small and granular and only change a few things at once. But one of the things they do have is a staged conversion. So they have split up a bunch of their stuff into relatively safe fixes, things like uh, changing the exception syntax using print function. So the, the print function is easy to change, making sure that your classes have an object-based class. And apparently the iterator syntax changed, but I apparently that I didn't realize that. And a handful of other things that are really safe to just change. So there's a stage one that just changes all that stuff. And then the stage two, where there's some more risky items, possibly they do more kind of wrap some of the Python 2 style stuff with Python 3 style code. And, you know, of course, all of this would only be for large projects because small projects, just go do it yourself, man. Anyway, if you're going to try to do all the, these modular things, It'd be kind of neat if you could test between hand and, and save all your changes. Timothy Hopper put together something called uh, Auto Futurize that is a shell script that uses um, Git to save all your changes and then talks to run your, is assuming you're using talks to t check your code. And it um, it goes and go ahead, cause it does all of these changes to your code and uh, tests it in between. And if it does a little bit of a change and your tests pass, it does the rest of it. And then it doesn't check in things that don't work. So this is kind of fun and, and it'd be fun to try on a project. Yeah, I like the idea of both of these. I can totally envision like some high paid consultants <laughs> sitting down to do the Python 2 conversion for the companies that put their head in the sand until, you know, January. Uh, and then they come in and they just, you know, run this for the morning, go have a long lunch. <laughs> <laughs> come back <laughs> everyone will be super happy how quickly they did it and uh it'll be great the machine will do all the conversion yeah there'll be like two files that they have to hand edit to fix and uh, exactly it's gonna take a few weeks but we'll, we'll see if we can get it done without too much of a problem <laughs> <laughs> hey that's a new business idea maybe i should yeah. start another side business it's a little shady but you know look <laughs> it's all right so thanks tim for uh for christmas money for next year yeah thank you tim yeah. and that's a cool actually you know in all seriousness it's a cool project and i think it's gonna help a lot of folks yeah speaking of helping folks anthony shaw he's putting a lot of content out there for everyone and yes. the reason we talk about him so often is often he's doing some kind of blog post or he's written some kind of cool article. And he went kind of meta recently and did a live stream. I think it was on YouTube. 
of how he goes about writing these posts, how he does research, how he thinks about the different formats, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was just, it's still on my to-do list to watch. So you watched it and it was pretty good? I watched, yeah, about 20 minutes of it. Didn't have a chance to watch the whole thing, but it was, <laughs> it's good. Him just writing a post and you just watch him write it. He goes through and talks about the different posts he's written, some of the trade-offs and how he works and things like that. So he talks about one of his posts called Modifying the Python Language in Six Minutes, which is like a deep code-focused article. He talks about listicles. And so he talks about five easy coding projects to do with kids he did. He talks about what is popular and like why those are popular, which is pretty interesting. He says one type of article he likes to write is like question articles. So why is Python slow, for example? And of course, to you know disprove that or whatever. And then also the tourist, like I'm going to take you on a tour or something. So tourist guide to the C Python source code. So if you're looking to up your writing game or get inspired, you know, if you sit down, you're like, oh, we got to write about something. What am I going to do? Well, here's a bunch of ideas like, do I want to write a listicle? Do I want to write a tour? Do you want to write a question? And so on. It really helps focus the, the mind and get you going, I think. Yeah, definitely going to check this out because he's pretty much crushing it. And I'd like to um, kind of learn from that technique. So yeah, yeah very, very well done. Uh, nice job, Anthony. I feel like you've chosen a very controversial topic for the next one. <laughs> Not so much, but but a pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just totally forgot that it was controversial. <laughs> and I know it was like big thing at the time, but it's the walrus operator or PEPS 572. And I kind of love the walrus operator because it's the uh, what semi or the colon with the equal sign. And it's basically excitement expression that's coming in Python 3.8 in it's kind of hard to describe on audio, but it's a, so if, a lot of the times if you were to say, I do it a lot with dictionaries or if I'm looking into some data database or something, I want to find out if an element is there. And if it is there, I want the value. And it's always this two-stage thing. And it'd be great. And pattern matching is another one, regular expressions. If there is a match, then search for it and get this stuff. Otherwise, don't do something. And, uh, being able to do this as one assignment expression is going to, I think, help out quite a bit. Anyway, you can play with it now. So that that's the whole point of this is uh, Alexander Holtner. Holtner, yes, wrote an article saying that now that the alphas, some of the alpha releases for Python 3.8 are out, you can try these out. And he wrote a post demonstrating exactly what I was talking about, getting elements out of a dic- iterating through dictionaries and grabbing keys out of their elements if they if they exist he used pi env and uh to grab the new releases i don't know why but i'm just one that i like to just download the stuff so i've added the links to the to the two three eight alphas available so far people yeah, want to cool. try it out so yeah the one that i really like here is the list expression which could be a generator or it could be set expression or whatever but a list comprehension because Those have to be one line. And if you want to assign a variable and then test it and do other stuff with it, you can't really, you can't really do that. And without the walrus operator, if you're going to like apply like a function to the elements that you're looping over and then you want to use those, you have to basically get access or compute that twice for each element. And the walrus lets you do it all in one. So these little expressions are kind of like the lambda has the, you know, the colon and then the body type of syntax it's a little bit like that kind of in line and that definitely seems nice to me yeah that's a pretty cool use i hadn't hadn't really seen that before this article i guess i didn't pay much attention but using it as a in a comprehension is pretty cool yeah cool yeah also your little nested for loop if test 
it's pretty nice. You know, I, I guess I'm coming around to the walrus operator, honestly. Yeah, I mean, w- once I start using 3.8, I'll be using it all the time. It'll be like be like using F-strings, I think, to say, okay, well, now it's 3.8 and above because I don't want to use anything else. Uh, yeah. I'm not there awesome. yet, but... <laughs> awesome. All right, well... Before we get on to the next one, which I'm pretty thrilled about because it's simple and amazing, I just want to tell you quickly about Datadog. So they're sponsoring this episode. Of course, Datadog is a monitoring and analytics service that brings all your metrics and logs and distributed traces together. And their client automatically instruments things like asynchronous libraries such as AsyncIO and popular frameworks like Django or Tornado to help you visualize your performance. If you want to trace your requests across service boundaries and figure out where your app is slow or find errors, you know, go over to pythonbytes.fm slash datadog. Got a cool free trial there and you get a nice little datadog t-shirt too. So check them out. It helps support the show. Now to the awesome thing. We talked about click and we talked recently about arg pars and other cool ways to build command line applications, right? Yeah. And there's of course the tried and true input. Right? You got input, what is your question, and you set the value, and then you maybe have to test it, see whether it's an integer, and then like if there's an error, you say, no, there's an error, you can't say that, you got to say an integer, and there's all these these challenges, right? So maybe I've got a list of things I'd like them to pick from, like what kind of, you know, maybe you're building a, a site and like through a generator, says, well, what kind of data backend do you want? I want Django RM, I want SQL Alchemy, I want raw SQLite, whatever. You might give them a list and say, well, pick one, two, three, or four, right? Uh, which box do you want? Well, with Bullet, have you seen Bullet? I'm just looking at it right now, yeah. and it's so pretty exciting. It's incredible, right? So what you get is imagine like a drop-down combo box like you would have on the web that is the list, and you can click, but in the command line, as a command line argument. So it says choose something, and you can arrow through it. It has like little indicator of which one you're on. Oh, man, it is slick. And it supports colors and emojis. and It has a scroll bar. <laughs> it has a scroll bar. You can like even scroll through them if there's too many choices to fit on the screen. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool and it's easy to use. So that's nice. There's also other types of inputs. Like you can have a password. It says enter your password or what is the password and it does the star marking. Wow. Okay. Which is cool. It, it has yes, no questions, numbers. It'll only, you know, a number input. You can only enter numbers. It won't accept, you know, junk that won't parse. So you don't have to go through all those steps. Uh it's pretty incredible, right? Yeah. So we need somebody to write cookie cutter with uh, with bullet prompts. Exactly. I was thinking of cookie cutter, exactly, because cookie cutter asks all those types of questions all the time. And yeah. it would be beautiful to have bullet just, you know, beautifying all these things. So there's one idea people want to contribute to open source. Another one is right here on bullet, uh, you know, there's probably other types of input besides passwords, yes, no, and numbers like maybe multi-select, I don't know, but also looking for Windows support. I think right now this does not work on Windows because the way the terminal works versus on, you know, a POSIX system. So pretty mm. cool though. Okay. Still, yeah. still digging it. Yeah. So go bullet. Go bullet. Yeah. So we actually have a couple items to do with PIP and packages and installing. You go first. Okay. Well, last week, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, we talked a little bit about maybe you want to try something different than uh, Travis for your... Uh, pipelines um, for your (laughs) continuous integration? The exodus after all the uh, layoffs and all that business, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, or just maybe you just want to try Azure anyway or Azure just because it looks neat. There's an article that I thought was super cool that was um, hosting private PIP packages using Azure artifacts. And the idea is for of the article is, let's say if I'm using 
Azure pipelines to do actually a data pipeline, doing a whole bunch of different stages of manip- changing the data or whatever, whatever you do with data pipelines. Some of the work can be packaged up and used uh, in later stages with just like a pip install. That'd be cool. And then how, how do you do that? There's a few gotchas that they get through. And they, for instance, at one part, you can't just use the normal pipelines just by itself, but you can use the CI pipelines from Azure DevOps tool to get the packages into an artifact form. And basically it's all the hacks that you need to do to make this work. I just thought that was cool. Isn't it? Yeah, I think that sounds really cool as well. And, you know, go ahead and leverage those artifacts to, to make your pipelines, which is cool. I don't think you can make these public. They're mostly, you know, you're using it for your own stuff. So they're a little bit private. Like they're talking about using a credential, hooking up your credentials so that uh, pip install can get those correctly. Um, and then I also wanted, one of the things we did did talk about last week was um, Anthony Shaw's uh, PyTest Azure Pipelines PyTest plugin. We've already covered that last week, but one of the things that's cool that happened since then is that plugin is now part of the recommended pipeline, recommended setup from Microsoft itself. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well done. So it's definitely going to be sort of the de facto way over there now. Yeah. So I want to talk about something pretty unique. Uh, maybe we haven't touched on this before. It's, it has to do with GUIs, like building. <laughs> So uh, last week we spoke about mixing in the async IO, this was two weeks ago, the async IO pipeline sort of event loop and mixing that in with Qt. So Qt for Python and PyQt and things like that. So all GUIs have event loops, right? They're always just going around and around going, did something happen? Did they click a button? I'm looking for, you know, like mouse move. I'm looking for key down, resize events. And it just, you know, passes it on to like the various event handlers. Well, async IO is another loop that kind of goes around and around process things, but like, how do we put those together? So a guy named Andy Bulka sent us a message after hearing the first conversation about what was it? He was async QT, cute was the name of the project. After hearing about that, he's like, Hey, I work on WX Python and, uh, you know, there's a cool thing called WX async as well, and it does a really similar thing and it basically merges those two event loops into one thing, which is pretty cool. So he wrote a really nice in-depth medium article about it called Async and Await for WX Python. Oh, very nice. That's cool. uh, So one of the challenges with WX Python apparently is doing background work, right? So you try to like call a service or you try to do something and, you know, if you don't take extra measures, it's going to block up that event loop that is the GUI thread and it's just like your app's going to freeze and not respond and do all sorts of bad stuff you're not supposed to do in desktop apps. So with this, you can have async handlers that, you know, run in the background. So if you're like waiting on a call to go to the service, you just await that and like the event loop keeps on chugging. So it's, it's pretty cool. Obviously you can do threading and multiprocessing and that kind of stuff, but this is a little bit cleaner if you want to use async and await. Yeah, nice. The other thing that he talks about in his article is about this sort of viral nature of using async and await. So if I define a function, I say async def something, the function that's going to call it may well have to itself be async so it can await it. And then like the things that call that have to become asyncified and so on. It creates this kind of like from the bottom up spread of async, like invading all of your code, which that can be a challenge. 
And it talks a little bit about that, but I would just wanted to throw a shout out which to something I think we've spoken about before. If I haven't, we should definitely make it a full featured item later. But Unsync, have I mentioned Unsync on the show? I don't remember. All right, well, that's probably going to be a new thing. If we haven't, I'll double check. But Unsync is a super simple library that puts a unifying API on multiprocessing, threading, and asynchronous methods. And it manages its own little background queue running somewhere else on another thread. It allows you to do a lot of things like uh, just blocking on those running sub-method calls to get the result so that you don't actually have the problem. You, you can sort of use it to stop this async spread of these methods. So anyway, you know, it's an interesting article. It's interesting. It covers that. And I want to throw unsync out there as one of the cool solutions uh, for it. Yeah. Cool. That's a good thing to bring up. I kind of didn't think about that. Um, I mean, I, I'm used to it in C++ world that if you're running multi-threaded, everything's got to be multi-threadable. Yeah. It starts to go crazy. And it's just like, yeah, similarly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Pretty cool. All right. Well, that's it for our main items. I have a couple of follow-up ones and I have a set of jokes for you. I have a joke generator for you even. How's that? Oh, that's great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You got anything you want to let people know about? No. So you just released a new uh, testing code episode? Yeah. The, the released a, an episode talking about a uh, fun alternative to or version of TDD that's called TCR, test commit revert, with the idea of uh, what happens if every time your tests fail, you just throw away all your code that you've changed since the last good commit. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems absolutely crazy, but it's a fun thing to talk about. Yeah, it, it does seem a little crazy, but also, uh, yeah, it seems fun. Yeah, and then there are a whole bunch of cool people lined up. I've got like six interviews lined up, so there's going to be lots of good content coming up soon. Yeah, sweet, sweet. All right, well, I have a couple of things, a correction, some self-aware acknowledgments, and then a joke. So correction, we spoke about the MongoDB licensing and the AWS kerfuffle where AWS said, well, you're going to change your license so we can't use MongoDB as our own service? Well, fine, we'll rewrite a new implementation that has nothing to do with you, but is, you know, wire protocol identical and things like that. Well, mostly I got that right. However, Will S sent me a message, said, hey, I actually posted a message on the comment section of that episode. And said, hey, you said they switched to the AGPL. They actually had already been on the AGPL. And what they switched to is something called the SSPL, server-side license. And it turns out that the OSI Open Source Initiative doesn't even recognize SSPL as an open source license because of the way some of its conditions. And so it's interesting in some sense that like MongoDB might not even be open source anymore based on its license. Not in the traditional, what does its license mean sense anyway. Right. I took the perspective of, let's say I've got a service out there. I'm just like a, to have a side project where I've got a service out there where I just run my own instance of uh, Mongo and have, uh, I'm using that. Do I have to worry about this license change? And the answer is no. Yeah, that's what I, I saw as well. It's like, but if you want to be a cloud provider and you want to offer the service to others, yeah. then you do. Right. But if if the service you're offering isn't, Mongo, it's just some other service that happens to use Mongo. Yeah, you're, you're good. Yeah, like businessinsider.com or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So. Okay, so MongoDB license, sorry, it's SSPL. That's the, the change. It was already AGPL. Thank you, Will, for that. So, Brian, do you know that Legacy Python is uh, self-aware and has actually entered the fifth stage of grief? <laughs> no. So try, people out there can try this. So if you type Python 2 dash m and you run any module so like python 2 dash m pip 
list, like that's a meaningless command, you'll get the output that says deprecation Python 2.7 will reach its end of life on January 1st, 2020. Please upgrade your Python as Python 2.7 won't be maintained after that date. Moreover, my word, a future version of pip will drop support for Python 2.7. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah, sense. So, I mean, I feel like that's acceptance. Right. It's like, yeah, I'm going away. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, there's a funny uh, Twitter thread as well that I, I threw out when I first saw that going by. So that's cool. And then finally, we talked about PIP and packaging and stuff. There's this thing that Dan Bader from Real Python shot me over and said, hey, have you seen this? This is kind of cool. Called PyDist. So this is a thing, a service, I guess, that is in beta. And the idea is it you can use it as your package source right for pip and and whatnot and you can have public and private dependencies there it'll mirror the public ones and keep a copy of them and never ever delete them even if they were deleted from pip uh pipi so that you always have them there stable it's pretty cool it's supposed to do a bunch of other stuff like show you like if you use this package here are all the packages that depend upon it and what you're going to get which is not really available right now and Things like that. But it looks like it maybe at some point become a paid service. I don't know. It's in free beta. They don't say one way or the other. So anyway, maybe that's helpful to people out there. Yeah, interesting though. Cool. All right. You ready for a joke? But definitely. This is super hilarious. All right. Let's do this. Pip install dash dash user pie jokes. Okay. So. All right. You got to do it. Or better, I'm super loving Pip X. So Pip X install pie jokes if you got that because that that is the business these days. Pip X is awesome. It's like homebrew, but for Python executables. Okay, this is going to take too long. All right, let me, I'll, I'll do a couple, and then you can give me one at the end. So what this is, this is a package that you can install that gives you a command line access to developer jokes. Really? Yeah, okay. So once you install, I'm going to type pyjoke. There are two ways to write error-free programs. Only the third one works. All right, let's see what else we got. <laughs> this one, I think you'll like this one. A QA engineer walks into a bar, runs into a bar, crawls into a bar, dances into a bar, tiptoes into a bar, rams a bar, Jumps into a bar. Okay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> How many programmers does it take to change a light bulb? None. <laughs> they just make darkness a standard. Uh, let's see. <laughs> a good programmer is someone who always looks both ways before crossing a one-way street. <laughs> <laughs> see, these are at, like, once you, once you install Pipex and sell pie jokes, these are at your hand. And you're like, I'm feeling a little down. What are we going to do? Why do Java programmers wear sunglasses? Because they can't see sharp. Huh. So, like, there's it just doesn't stop, apparently. <laughs> well, we don't even have to have anybody submit any jokes for us anymore. We just yeah. use these. We have the fountain of the endless fountain of jokes. Although I'm sure there is some limit to how many jokes are in there. You can go to their website and actually submit a joke to be included in the app. Uh, okay. Which is all good. So, I have so, to make sure I update it every once in a while. Yeah, that's why you need PipX, because then you have to do PipX update all, and it, it does it. Okay. Cool. Sweet. Anyway, that's our joke. If people can go out there and install uh, PyJokes, the package, and run it. Although they might ne- not need us anymore, Brian. Yeah, they will. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll need our wonderful transitions from one thing to another. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, a lot of fun as always, and I'll chat with you later. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.